Welcome to McKinsey on Government. Each episode examines one of the hardest problems facing government today and solutions from McKinsey experts and other leaders. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. Organizations of all sizes in the public and private sectors are reopening their workplaces or thinking about how to do that. The federal government has some unique issues to deal with as it does so. That's the subject of McKinsey on Government this week with Megan McConnell, partner with McKinsey and Company. Megan, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. We talked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about when the pandemic will end. The place to begin for us, I guess, is what does the end of the pandemic look like in the federal workplace environment? What will people be coming back to or what will they be staying home to or in their remote location to six months from now or a year from now or two years from now? What kind of what does the kind of the future look like at the rank and file level and at the manager's level? Thanks for having me. Um, To answer that question about what it will look like, I don't think that there will be a stark end I think we all expect some form of executive order or some signal from the administration that things are reopening or headed back to normal. If I was sitting in a worker's shoes, what I would hope is that prior to that end, there's a clear communication about the new expectations. And if I'm you know, sitting currently in my home office, I am hoping that those expectations are not what they used to be, that there is a great deal more flexibility afforded in terms of using telework policies or even potentially fully remote jobs that will allow me to keep what I've enjoyed about working from home and mitigate the risks that I've experienced, whether that's feeling that I wasn't going to be as creative with my team or wasn't feeling as included you know, with my associates at work. How does a manager <laughs> resist the temptation of saying, well, we're kind of going back to normal, so we're going back to the same telework policies or remote work policies that we instituted before that we've learned over the last 14 months everybody hated. So two ways I think that happens. The first one is I would not leave that up to the individual manager. And and from all the conversations that I've been having um, with different federal agencies and hearing how OPM is thinking about this, we do not believe that that is going to be the case We do believe that there are going to be overarching policies. For example, we know the USDA has come out and said that they're reverting to the telework policy of the Obama administration, which was quite liberal in terms of, I think, up to four days a week. Um, So that's two times per pay period in which you had to be in the office. And from there, they're helping individual agencies recognizing that the work is quite different given how um, heterogeneous the agents, the department is, they're helping them set up the standards and the guidelines. The second part of this, though, is giving managers kind of a framework or a way of thinking about it, because what we know from research is that the most productive teams are the ones where the manager leads them in establishing their own norms and work practices. And so helping managers have the tools to do that and then offering the support at an agency level for them to implement those changes will be critical. Otherwise, it's quite naive to leave it up to individual managers. I would argue, though, Megan, that if you go back to what we had in the Obama administration, the policy was one thing and the execution was something else. And the employees would say anecdotally, yeah, I know that's what the policy says, but that's not what my boss is open to hearing about. 
And I wonder if we think or if you're hearing that the last 14, 15 months has changed enough people's minds at the mid-level that that won't be an issue this time around, or if we might find ourselves in that same situation where people are going, okay, well, everybody's got vaccines for the most part, and they should all just come back and do things the way that they want to. Because there is that disconnect, or the way that we want to, because there is that disconnect between what the policy says and what my boss or my boss's boss actually wants me, us to do. I agree with you. I think it'll be very key to get out ahead and of the policy change and not assume that a policy change in and of itself is going to be enough. What managers really need and what we see is working well in the private sector is organizational support to make these changes. And that includes things like very tactical skill building. I mean, think about if you were a manager pre-pandemic, the way you managed was you generally had an office, it overlooked 10 to 15 cubicles of your team sitting in front of you. You knew when they came in in the morning, you knew that Dion came late on Tuesdays because he had physical therapy to treat, you know, a knee injury. Um, You knew that Debbie leaves on Friday afternoons to pick up her kids and go to their soccer game, right? You also knew when everyone's birthdays were because someone brought in a treat. Um, You understood what your employees were doing because you saw them and you saw them and they could step into your office, poke their head in and give you information. It's a whole new skill to manage remote workers and a hybrid team. And people, I believe, fundamentally can adapt and learn, but we have to offer them the support in which to do that. And there are very specific skill building programs that can be done. There are technological tools and collaboration software that can support this, but they need all of that ecosystem in place in order to make the policies from theoretical to practical for them. You talked earlier about the necessity for clear communication, and I've heard that from other experts too, that that will be critical through the comeback to the office phase uh, and, and the subsequent period of time that people kind of get readjusted to whatever the next thing is. I have four things that I scribbled down here as you've been talking, and I want to kind of give them to you rapid fire. Who should be communicating with who? What direction should that go? Or should it be horizontal as well as vertical? What does that look like? For the communication, very important to have the guidelines on what we're going to do come top down. This is the collaboration software that we're going to use. We've chosen Zoom for government. We've chosen Microsoft Teams. We've chosen Skype. Doesn't really matter as long as it's clear. This is how we as an agency are going to implement the department-wide telework policy. Everyone will be in the office on Mondays. Those are the days we're going to collaborate. We'll figure out the other four. From there, once you have that top-down guidelines, that's where the manager to employee, direct employee, so still top-down, but also horizontal can come in where there can be a discussion across the team What's the work we're doing? How have things changed? What practices and norms do we need to put in place? Because what works for that team over there isn't going to work for our team. Our team cannot be in back-to-back-to-back meetings all day because we're actually the HR recruiting team and we need to spend our time talking to candidates. How often should uh, that communication be happening? And can one over-communicate in this kind of environment? Might be controversial, I'd say you cannot over-communicate at this stage, especially because we are still virtual. And we know that 
to communicate effectively in a virtual model actually takes two or three more reps than in an in-person model. There is research to back that up. In terms of, I think, all big changes, communicate, communicate, communicate at the beginning, run the risk of over-communicating, and then you can get into a steady battle rhythm and cadence. I do think it's quite important for the regular check-ins to happen, to take stock. You won't get it right, right out of the gate. And so the more that there's the feeling that people can express um, how they are feeling at work, how productive they're being, what's working and what isn't, the sooner you will get to that highly productive model that takes the best of remote work and hybrid work and com- and mitigates the risks um, that we have seen uh, come up through the pandemic. How granular <laughs> should that communication be, Megan? Is it possible for there to be too much detail um, as you're communicating with these people? Yes, I think the key to communications is having quite a, a direct message uh, and then saying it until you are sick of saying it. Um, that is best practice communications, especially from a top down. There's also the risk of let's call it an undersecretary tinkering with a 35,000 foot screwdriver telling you know, a recruiter uh, for the HR team or benefits and processing how they're gonna do their work, uh, which just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's also probably not a good use of that undersecretary's precious time. So in terms of the level of detail, this is where uh, we would, we've advised our clients um, that delegating as much of the tactical day-to-day down to the teams and then trusting but verifying that that discussion is happening at a very detailed level between managers and their direct reports is incredibly important. But giving due deal detailed guidance will usually backfire. So would the same level of uh, tactical versus strategic communications in other areas make sense here? Should the same people who do the tactical boots on the ground stuff be the same people that are doing that kind of communication here or, or maybe i'm thinking about it too hard maybe i'm trying to be a little bit too prescriptive i think the key is that the communication can't come from a separate entity it actually has to come from the leaders and the managers themselves and they certainly should have professionals helping them along the way uh, but these are really conversations about how are we going to work together to accomplish our mission to get something done? And the people that know what that looks like the best are people doing the work themselves. And so this is one where I I strongly believe you cannot outsource the communications and not having the perfect answer is, um, and, and, but still talking about it is much better than trying to hold back uh, for the perfect Um, I used the word prescriptive a moment ago, and that was the last scribble that I wrote down for this uh, rapid fire round. How prescriptive should that communication be? How much should it be someone telling the employee, this is how we're going to do it? And how much of it should be guidance that's not quite as uh, much like an order? This is what you have to do. I think it's very important to have prescriptive guidelines So as I had mentioned before, this is the collaboration software we will use. These are the core working hours, 10 to 2, that we expect everyone to be online, but not have too many of those, Mm -hmm. right? But set out the things that are going to actually give you the stable backbone on which then individual teams can pivot and make decisions for themselves. And this may feel quite different, especially in the federal space where everyone is treated the same, everyone is working the same, policies are applied the same. But in this 
instance, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to try to standardize everything. So let's have these specific guidelines that make kind of the playing field even or people don't feel like they are being unfairly treated or have an advantage. But from there, let teams decide how they want to operate and then be prescriptive, though, to your earlier question about how frequently we should we be talking that they need to be reporting up the chain about how it's going. They also need to be regularly held to account for the mission metrics, right? The outputs that their team is supposed to deliver and have those regular performance conversations about how is this working and what needs to change. Megan McConnell of McKinsey, before we started recording, um, I mentioned to you I was interested in pursuing a line of thought about what the real estate footprint of an agency might look like, and you suggested that I broaden that concept to thinking about the entire workplace environment, which I think is smart, because the workplace environment will encompass everything. It will encompass the little piece of uh, space that I have in the office. It will encompass the the conference space that we use when I'm collaborating with my group. Uh, and that will look different than it probably did in February of last year. Um, and my workplace environment is wherever I work remotely, uh, if I start to do that more or start to do it almost completely. So how does one think about that at an enterprise level in a holistic way and how does one think about the way that that impacts how you're designing job descriptions and how you're designing a team and how you're making those communications that we just talked about? So if we thought about the workplace environment, I think the premise is how can we make people as productive in the office, at home, and on the road, right? If you're TDY, or let's say you're on a personal trip to your in-laws and you would rather be working in the office than spending time with them, you know, your home office, how do you, how does the employer make their employee as productive in each of those circumstances? And that involves a couple things. One is still the physical footprint, right? From all of the surveying that we've done, um, very few, fewer than 10% of workers are interested or employers are interested in not having an office anymore, right? You've heard of um, the folks like Twitter and some others that have said, we're gonna go fully remote, no one's coming back. But in general, the return to work will involve the office. The question, rightly so, is what is the purpose of the office? And if it's no longer for people to do individual work in individual rooms or individual cubicles, because they can do that at home or elsewhere, then the office really becomes about collaboration, innovation, creativity, um, creating those informal interactions and those formal interactions. And so you would imagine rethinking that uh, office workspace and potentially also rethinking the office footprint, right? You could see a much wider footprint, but lighter. So fewer office headquarters or the idea of a headquarters and many more satellites. I was talking to um, one uh, one colleague of mine, uh, and we were discussing this idea of could there be federal we work spaces of sorts in cities around the country, uh, which gets us out of Washington, but where any federal worker in Minneapolis or in um, Lincoln, Nebraska, could go into an office, have access, and it didn't matter what agency they were from. So rethinking that footprint and also getting it out of DC 
could make us more productive, access to more talent and more resilient. The other big piece here is the tech tools and the collaboration tools that are supporting someone who is all on the move. So in corporate America, very standard to be issued a laptop, standard to be issued a phone, those connect to your email, those connect to your share drives, those let you access the important documents and information that you need at any step along the way. And that will be critical in terms of what are employers giving the government employees to enable this. So that federal WeWork idea is really interesting to me, Megan, because the government gets crushed all the time, especially the federal government, for not being innovative and not being forward thinking. I remember it's got to be at least 10 years ago, and it's headed probably toward 15 years ago. The General Services Administration used to host remote work locations. I think there were six or seven of them around the Beltway. And people who worked remotely could go there, no matter what agency they worked for. It wasn't just for GSA. You could go there and work instead of driving all the way downtown. And I want to say there was like one in Springfield. And there were, you know, different places around the Beltway. And the attraction at that time was the broadband that people had in their homes was not nearly as good as what you could bring to a business location. That's not the case anymore. But essentially, it sounds like what you're suggesting is something that to some degree, if, if anybody remembers, the government already knows how to do that. I mean, they, they did it once before and bringing that back and then scaling it across the country sounds like what the potential solution there could be. Is that, am I, am I hearing you right? Yes. And I think in this case, to your point, solving a slightly different problem, which one could be access to systems that they don't feel comfortable giving access to on any given laptop or, you know, just through a VPN. Um, The second one would be offering opportunities for collaboration, uh, either across agencies or if there is a cohort, right, that's all like working remotely take the Minneapolis example, they could still meet in an office to whiteboard, to host a meeting um, or host meetings you know, with um, local industry groups. If, for example, they were working in agriculture and they're talking to um, you know, the major consumer packaged good companies or something like that. So I think there's many different re- things that you could do in the office spaces. Um, but yes, I think it's, it's starting to use that muscle that they had used previously. I wonder what cues federal agencies should be taking either just for ideas or for watching how strategy implementation happens from big companies in the private sector. A lot of the banks on Wall Street have said everybody's coming back and they've set a date. You have to be back in the office by X date. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But not everybody's doing that. And I think it'll be interesting to watch what that means for employment patterns. And I think it will be interesting to watch what that means for the economic success of the neighborhoods where those businesses are, all of that. And I, but I wonder at a, at a federal agency level or a unit inside a federal agency, how much attention you think I should pay to what companies are doing, similar size, similar location, whatever, to, to take cues from them about what might work for me. I think in general, the federal government can learn a lot from the, from industry, and it doesn't necessarily need to even be the fastest mover <laughs> right behind. It can learn lessons, and certainly what industry is doing then changes the marketplace in which they are operating. This is the other reason to look at it. I, I think staying aware is really important, especially as we think about talent and how what these companies are doing is changing the talent marketplace um, and what 
workers expect, uh, especially the next generation of workers. But interestingly, we find not huge disparities between the interest in hybrid work from Gen Zers up to baby boomers. Everyone is interested in this model. And so paying attention to what those companies are doing is really important to understand how they are just fundamentally changing expectations in the talent market. I think the second thing is thinking about how the government can experiment or where they can take the least amount of risk in a real estate focus. So playing playing around with leases, um, thinking about the different kinds of spaces you could do versus massive renovations as this starts to play out. Because I don't think we know what the next normal exactly is going to be. I think we know it's going to be different, but to what degree and what's the right um, real estate kind of fit for purpose for government, I, I don't think that we know that yet. We're starting to run out of time, Megan. You said earlier something that I think is really important for everybody to understand through this process. We're not going to get this right, right out of the gate. Where do you think the biggest potential is for somebody to make a mistake? And what's the action that you would suggest that someone take to avoid that mistake, to not make it, to make as few mistakes as possible as this all starts to happen? I think the biggest mistake that could be made is going straight back to where we were before. If you think about what we've been able to do in this great work from home experiment, the government has been incredibly adaptable, resilient, moved everyone home. And so I think the real risk is in trying to go backwards because the rest of the world isn't going backwards. And if federal government is the one that is trying to do that, I think it makes it seem more out of touch with the world. Uh, it causes great talent attraction and retention issues. I mean, we know that 30% of all American workers say if they had to go back five days a week, they're finding a new job, right? So um, the cat is out of the bag and there are real potential advantages here in productivity, in resiliency, uh, in the talent marketplace, and it would be a shame to let this moment go by. Megan McConnell, thanks for a great conversation. It's a kind of a brave new world we're looking forward to, and it's wonderful to get some insight into it. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to McKinsey on Government, a presentation of McKinsey and Company. Our next episode's in a couple of weeks. You can subscribe to McKinsey on Government everywhere you get your shows. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.